0: good morning everyone well that was loud that's great uh that will get you awake um well we start another lord's day today looking forward to everything we have we have a lot of good stuff today and um in particular uh this morning we get to start another topic in systematic theology which is always exciting um this is something i'm particularly sensitive to uh I don't know why, I'm just built this way, but this room is not good for BTI, it's the only one we have to do it, because there's too many chairs and not enough people, so if you would turn to the middle and say hello, <laughs> hello. there we go, see, all right, this, is, this sort of dynamic is just not conducive to fellowship, I, I know that at Grace right now, Grace stands for grab really awesome chairs early, um, and I understand that, so just... Be all here if you can. I, I, I'd rather have you close and up front, but I know that uh, you have to save seats because the the mad rush starts uh, in a little while. I understand that. First time I went to Grace Community Church um, in Sun Valley, we thought we arrived at Spiritual Disneyland. And what we found was we arrived at 10,000 people all vying for 3,000 seats. <clears throat> and uh, so in Jesus' name, if you were slower than your brother, then that was too bad for you. <laughs> for you. Um, they've worked hard at, to, to help that, but, uh, and you walk in and there's every seat saved. So that's where we came up with Grab Really Awesome Chairs Early, is what grace stands for. We are going to start probably the, most, uh, the, the least known area of theology, because it sounds odd to us, and that is the study of anthropology, the study of man. Study of mankind, anthropology, theologically speaking, is not, um, not going and digging up cultures and looking at how they lived. Anthropology is the nature of man, so this is a very important question for us. So we're going to pray and then we will get going on anthropology, part one. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time to be together. Thank you for your Word, which is so clear in every area of theology that we need to understand. And certainly in eternity we'll be just mind-blown at all the things that you teach us, that at your right hand there are joys and pleasures forevermore, that we will never cease to learn of you. But you have given us a Bible, which has given us a great head start, everything we need to know and we're capable of knowing. And Lord, today I pray that we would understand the nature of man as we begin our short study in anthropology, and we would... Um, apply this knowledge, Lord, in a way that is appropriate and that is useful and that um, reflects a Christian worldview because uh, our view of mankind is very much wrapped up in our worldview. And so we pray, Lord, that this is useful to all who hear today and glorifying and honoring to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, For those who are listening later, this is module two, session 11. And we're doing anthropology part one, study of mankind from a biblical perspective. And I want to read to you a quote from uh, Dr. Michael Vlock. He was one of my theology professors in seminary, and he wrote this. The psalmist asked the question, what is man? In Psalm 8, verse 4, few questions are as important. However, the study of man or anthropology has often been neglected. Yes, theologians throughout church history have had things to say about this topic, But most comments about anthropology have been offered within the context of other discussions. I think that's a, basically what he's saying is is that anthropology tends to be a footnote in the context of other discussions rather than its own discussion. Um, By the way, Vlock also pushes hard uh, to have a whole section of systematic theology called Israelology. And there's there's a push for that and there should be. Because Israel is certainly its own study. And like anthropology, Israelology often gets kind of just relegated to other areas. And so uh, those are both good things to to push forward on. Let me give you some reasons to think about anthropology. Why does this matter? The first one is that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. I think that uh, if we spent as much time studying the the spiritual nature of man as we even uh, study the first five days of creation then I think we would be uh, better off because mankind is the pinnacle of creation. There is a reason for the created order. And in fact, even within the creation of mankind, we know from the New Testament that there's a created order within the created order. That males were created first, women second. And and um, that is not a statement of inequality, it's a statement of order. Uh, just like everything else. The animals were created before man. And in that case, man is the icing on the cake uh, as the the ultimate uh, pinnacle of all of creation. Uh, thus, we don't treat animals as if they are our equals. So uh, the creation order is important. And how we understand that is a big part of how we view man. And we'll see this um, in a little while here. But understanding that mankind is the pinnacle of creation has implications for evangelism. And so we'll talk about that shortly. It also helps us understand how we relate to our creator. I think that understanding the, the glories of man that uh, God made us in his image, and then also understanding how that image has been tainted and the need that we have to be restored, to be uh, redeemed. It also helps us be able to refute false views of mankind. It helps us be able to understand uh, what the world says about humanity, which is always wrong. Unless you're a Christian, you're going to get it wrong Um, because your view of man will always be one of two things. Basically, there's two camps. Your view of man, on the one hand, from an unbeliever standpoint, your view of man is that mankind is basically good. The other option is that your view of man is that mankind is basically bad if they disagree with your position on things. Those are the two views. And we see this, for example, in liberal politics. We see that if you agree with them on critical race theory and all the liberal junk that goes on, you're seen as a very, very good person. If you disagree with them, you're seen as inherently evil and honestly worthy to not even live. And so that's why uh, we have to have a biblical view of mankind to refute false views. And then the fourth reason is we want to apply biblical truth to modern issues abortion, euthanasia, feminism, and those sorts of things. Anthropology informs our understanding of these things. And I'm going to go through a short list of those in just a little bit. Let me give you a big picture of why anthropology matters. This is what we call a Christian worldview. If you if you want to understand a Christian worldview, there are four basic components to a Christian worldview. We start with creation. Creation has to be part of the Christian worldview because God is a creator. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Then we move to the fall of mankind. Sin has entered into God's creation. Therefore, there's a need for salvation. That salvation is through Christ. And what is the purpose of that salvation? It is to provide restoration. And I would tell you that a good gospel presentation should include all four elements. Sometimes I think we fall into the trap of saying, well, you're a sinner and you need Christ. That is two and three but I think it's better if you go back to creation. You were created in the image of God, but mankind fell, and now you're a sinner because of that fall. That's, that's the second part. And you need Christ to step in and to be the sacrifice for your sin. Why? So that you can be, experience the restoration that God has intended for mankind, for all who would follow after Christ. And then you start telling them about how great the Garden of Eden was, and in the restoration, it all comes back. And wouldn't you like to be a part of that? So a gospel presentation, really more accurately, should include all four elements of a Christian worldview. Now, when we say restoration, we want to be clear about this. Restoration of all things doesn't mean that all things get saved, but all things get resolved, including judgment and salvation. So we're, we're not universalists saying that, you know, no matter what happens, everybody goes into the same funnel anyway. That's not the case. Judgment and salvation resolves everything. So, let's start with the basics. Let's start with the origin of man. There are two creation accounts, two major ones in Genesis. There's other creation accounts in, uh, throughout the Bible, but they refer back to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 26 through 31 is kind of the first big one, two creation accounts of men, of mankind. Genesis 1 describes the creation of the universe and of man. And now, following the creation of light, atmosphere, the seas, the land, and animals, God creates the first man. And then he created the first woman from the side, from the rib of the man. And this first creation account now introduces mankind as the pinnacle, as the finishing point of God's creation. And to clarify what I said earlier, mankind as a whole, male and female, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. As a subset within that pinnacle of God's creation, there is a created order. Man was created first and woman second. And that created order stays uh, in how we uh, function in the church and in the family. What was the purpose of the creation of mankind? They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to have dominion over the earth. And just uh, to be clear here, being fruitful is not a command to individual families. There is a whole belief system that says that if you are unable to have children, you are uh, somehow disobeying God because you're not being fruitful. Um, some have even used it to say that it, this is an argument against birth control of any kind uh, for any reason for any time. Um, we respect that and understand that, but that's not what this is talking about. What this really is, is not a command, it's an invitation. It's an invitation by God to mankind to dominate the earth and to, to multiply and to become many, to dominate the earth with human population. Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then, in Genesis one twenty six. Then means that there's something special, there's something unique. The creation of Adam is is in its own category. The human species is distinct and superior to other creatures made on the sixth day. I, I don't like it when I hear people refer to the human animal. We are not animals. We are humans. There is no other category like us. There is no comparison whatsoever. We are made in the image of God. We're a creature similar to God but not identical. So we're similar. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. You see how our, the gender issues of today are, are taking a shot right at the created order. Going all the way back to the beginning. Mankind is created as two genders male and female this is God's will. And in one verse you have three mentions of man and woman created in God's own image We are clearly related to God in a way that's not shared with any other creature. And there's always the argument, well, have you seen an orangutan or a gorilla? We're so similar to them. You know, uh, every vehicle that has four wheels has that in common. But that doesn't mean a Mazda is the same as a Maserati. They just happen to have some things that work the same way. That doesn't mean that they're the same. Genesis 131, and God saw that everything that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so God's creation, including the creation of man, is deemed by God as a very, very good thing. So that's the first creation account. How about the second creation account? The second account emphasizes the way that God created humanity. The first one is more of a general account. The second account in Genesis 2 is a little more specific. Genesis 2, seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So Yahweh forms man from the dust of the earth and breathes the breath of life directly into him and as a result of this divine imbreathing, breathing in, Adam became uh, a living creature made in the image of God in every way. So then, you know the story, Adam is, is puttering along, then God says in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is the only aspect of the original creation that's said to be not good. It's not the idea of, of uh, that it's sinful or that it's wrong, it's just the idea that it's not finished, that it's incomplete. Adam was incomplete without a companion. And by the way, uh, there is a there is a whole school of thought that says that if you sense a need for human companionship, or you lean on your 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 spouse or or family or friends too much, that you're showing that you don't um, you don't trust God. It's not an either or. It's not a it's not a choice you have to make. The desire for human companionship isn't inherently wrong, and it doesn't take away from our relationship with God. It's how we're created. It's how we're made. Even before the fall, God declares it's not good that the man didn't have a partner. And so healthy and good human relationships don't detract from our relationship to God. They they're, they work together. And I know uh, many of you, and, and I'm one of them, we have, we have pets that we're close to. And sometimes if you get too close to your pet, you, you almost start... You know, you become one of those cat ladies or something that uh, begins to treat pets like they're human. And like our little dog, uh, she is she is all heart and no brains at all. But we also know that she has a little sin nature because it's amazing the things that she can do. when she knows that we're not looking. But we're not trying to form Christ's likeness in her. Um, she's just a little dog. And if you read in Scripture... Why does she, why does she uh, do things that are bad? Because of mankind, not because of animal kind. It's our fault. The creation is groaning, waiting for uh, the renewal of all things. And so, yeah, we have these companionships uh, with, with animals. And, and we, uh, even, even some people have difficulty eating an animal because we got really close. And that's why if you've, if you've uh, ever been on a farm, you don't name certain animals because you're going to eat them. And that's not nice. It doesn't feel good. But as close as we can become to animals, and our little dog is so precious, all heart. She just comes and puts puts her little head on your lap, and you just feel better about everything. But she's not a companion like a human being is. It can't ever be. And so all the animals that Adam named still couldn't meet his deepest need for companionship. So what happened? Genesis two twenty one. the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the woman is distinct from the male within the unity of, of mankind. By the way, mankind is not a sexist term. It is the translation of the Hebrew term for humanity. It is man and those that are like man, mankind. So that's a, it's a biblical term and we'll use it because of that reason. And so with this act of forming the woman, creation now it reaches its intended goal. Male and female as equal and complementary forms of human life. And what is the one flesh reference here that 's a long discussion, but basically it signifies the uh, what one writer calls the psycho spiritual physical unity within the marriage relationship that it 's all the ways that we are unified together and become one i 'll never forget hearing a lecture by an atheist psychologist, and one of the one of the attendees of the lecture raised his hand and asked a question and said, "You know." <clears throat> Doesn't it seem like it's a sign of weakness or uh, what they called back then codependence? If a couple that's been married for 50 years, when one of them dies, the the level of grief and sadness, isn't that a sign of weakness? Isn't that a sign of not being independent and not being fully actualized in all these psychological terms? You know what this atheistic psychologist said? He said, you know, there are a few things I don't understand. He was very arrogant, so he thought there's only a few things he doesn't understand. But he said, one of the things I don't understand is that the level of oneness between a man and a woman in marriage over the course of 40, 50, and 60 years is a mystery that nobody can understand and nobody can fully fathom. We can. God created us to be one flesh, to be one, to uh, be able to finish each other's thoughts and sentences because we know each other so well and so forth. There are other creation passages. I've listed some of them up there for you if you want to note those. And so, um, again, we've talked about this before, but somebody says, well, I have a problem with Genesis 1 and 2. Well, you also have to problem, have a problem with Genesis 3, 5, Job 33, Psalm 8, Matthew 19, Acts 17, and Colossians 1. Uh, we'll add in Hebrews 1 in there as well. So uh, you can't say I have a problem with Genesis 1 and 2 without saying I have a problem with much of the rest of Scripture. So what is the purpose of the creation of mankind? Again, we're still kind of flying high here. The purpose of the creation of mankind, like everything else, is God's glory. That's the purpose for everything he does. Uh, Unlike American evangelicalism in the popular form, which tends to believe that God is there there because we need him. No, we're here because God is worthy of glory. And so we're here for him. It's not that he is here for us. This is not a man-centered faith. This is a God-centered faith. And of course, he is here for us. But ultimately, why is he here for us? For his own glory. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why were you created? To give glory to God. Why is the unbeliever such an abomination to God? Because the unbeliever is not fulfilling his or her mandate to give glory to God. And so that makes them essentially worthless because they're not fulfilling their their, uh, mandate to God. And how can they do that? Only through Christ. Only through Christ being recreated through the Holy Spirit into a new creation in Christ. The creation of mankind was... Preceded by what uh, theologians call the Divine Council of the Trinity. What was the Divine Council of the Trinity? Genesis one twenty six. Let us make man in our image. This is a clearly Trinitarian statement. You you can't derive a full theology of the Trinity solely from Genesis one twenty six, but with the context of the rest of Scripture, it makes total sense to us. And we've said this before, but the, the Trinity is fairly shadowy in the Old Testament. You get to Matthew 1.1, 1, 1 and it's just right there. The Trinity becomes this explosive uh, doctrine that makes the Old Testament make sense. Not reinterpreting the Old Testament, but shedding light on those things that were formerly more in the shadows. Let us make man in our image. That's the whole purpose of, of the creation of mankind, to be reflectors of the image of God to reflect his light, his goodness. So where did we come from? Well, let me give you some of the views that are popular on the origin of man. Again, we're still flying kind of high here. Atheistic evolution. This is the origin of man apart from any supernatural means that evolution just happened on its own. Um, it's been disproven by so many mathematicians that it's, it's mathematically impossible Uh, certainly in the ways that that evolutionists say that uh, it happened. Uh, Even when I was growing up, they still use the word theory of evolution. They don't use that word anymore. They just make statements. Well, mankind evolved and we developed a nose because, you know, smelling from our shoulder didn't work right. And so our nose moved over millions of years. This ridiculous statements like that just stated as facts. And so little third graders go, oh, it must be right because the teacher says so. And so atheistic evolution, uh, evolution is wicked in and of itself simply because it denies God, the existence of God. Oh, well, then we can solve that. How about theistic evolution? That God supervised the evolutionary process. Well, the problem is, is that that now denigrates Genesis 1 and 2 and turns it into, instead of a factual account of what actually happened, it becomes a myth or a legend. It becomes like a like a Greek myth that, uh, or or one of Aesop's fables, and so it denigrates the Bible to give out theist, theistic evolution. Uh, theistic evolution is absolutely uh, heretical. Why would we say that? Because you're attempting to overlay. Uh, I'm not even going to say science. It's not science. It's, it's, it's bogus theory. To overlay bogus theory onto the Bible and interpret the Bible via external means. No, we interpret the world from the Bible, not the other way around. And then there's progressive creationism. This is also called the day-age theory. That the days of creation are not to be understood as 24-hour as days, but ages. Equivalent to geological ages. And the... The argument is well. The ancient readers they wouldn't have understand understood the concept of of millions of years. I don't know. I just because they're a lot older than us doesn't mean they're stupid. Um, y- you could point to a forest and say, "Look at all the trees there. That's how many years it took for creation." So I don't think that holds water. That somehow they couldn't grasp large numbers. That's not the case at all. The the problem with progressive creationism here's the major problem is that it introduces death before the fall of man. Why is that a problem? Well, it's an attempt to reconcile the Bible with the teaching of traditional science since about the mid-1800s. So now you have death before the fall of man. You have the fossil record that supposedly shows that things were dying millions and billions of years ago. Then Adam and Eve came along and mankind fell into sin. If that's the case, we have a major problem. That means death is natural, normal, and good. And that's not okay. That's not certainly um, what God created the world to be. Then you have the gap theory. The gap theory is, is similar to the day-age theory, but the gap theory says there's a lengthy period of time between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2, and that lengthy period of time is millions and millions of years. And so they would say that the phrase formless and void in Genesis 1-2 refers to a chaotic earth that God judged. Again, though, if you do the timeline, this places death before the curse of sin. And so you have death before the fall of man. So the gap theory doesn't stand the theological test either. And, And all this is is an attempt, like people are doing right now, to take something that is popular in culture and overlay it on the Bible and say, see, the Bible supports what we say. And we've said this before, but I, I use the illustration because it's ridiculous enough to make the point that I could show you out of context 41 places in the Bible that says that God hates dogs. If we, if we want to support that, if you're a cat lover and you say dogs are, are, are a waste of oxygen, I can show you in the Bible that God hates dogs. Well, you can kind of show from the Bible anything you want if you twist it enough. This is why in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said that we refuse to tamper with God's word we present it as is. So, atheistic evolution, theistic evolution, progressive creationism, gap theory, they don't work and they're 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 wrong and they are unbiblical and they, they don't even they don't even stand the test of human logic, much less scripture. So, what do we hold to? We hold to a literal 24-hour day of days of creation. That God created directly and instantaneously in six 24-hour days. And so the earth today would be approximately seven to 10,000 years old. Uh, and people say, well, what about all the millions of years of geologic formations? The flood of Noah explains every one of them. Th- to be quite honest with you, the science of uh, understanding how what previously have been uh, interpreted as millions and millions of years, the science is so airtight that that it does help us understand that the Bible knows exactly what it's talking about. Uh, Science doesn't prove the Bible. I saw a a video on YouTube uh, just yesterday that said nine scientific discoveries that prove the Bible. Uh, The Bible doesn't need help proving itself. Um, You could say nine scientific discoveries that show that the Bible already knows what it's talking about. Um, That might be a little more accurate. But how do we know this? Well, the Hebrew word for day, yom, with a numeral like the first day or the second day, it always, every single time, designates a twenty-four hour day. It never means a long age. It never means a long period of time. The phrase "evening and morning" emphasizes a twenty-four hour day. Uh, just in case you didn't get the name "day," uh, we'll go with "evening and morning" also. Exodus twenty nine through eleven emphasizes a twenty-four hour creation by analogy to the command for man to labor in six days and rest on the seventh day, even as God did. If, if uh, they weren't literal days, God would have said, okay, work for about 60 years and then take one day off. No, you work six days, you take one day off. That was, that was his uh, format. And if mankind is evolved, because if you go with the millions of years view, then you kind of have to go with theistic evolution as well. If mankind is evolved, then he's only a higher form of animal without moral sensibility or accountability. But Scripture presents us as moral creatures, as those who are accountable to God. We have a soul. We are eternal. Man is made in the image of God. Genesis one twenty six. that's really not a statement that applies to one who is a product of any form of evolution. If you're a product of evolution, then you're way more similar to an animal than you are to God. And that can't be the case. Um, Just so you know, almost every Christian college in the United States subscribes to some version of day-age theory. That there are very few Christian colleges that if if you're going to send your kids off to a college, this is the question you need to ask them. What is your view of creation? Because if they say anything other than a 24-hour, six-day creation, then they now have a problem with their Christology because Christ is said to have been the creator in in Colossians 1. They have a problem with Bibliology because they are denigrating uh, Genesis 1 and 2. I've told this story before, but it's worth repeating. I had the opportunity to teach through Genesis 1 and 2 to a group of first and second graders for a period of uh, a couple of months. And we, we used a whiteboard. I, I taught through every day of creation and we went through. It. And then at the end, I told them we were going to, I was going to see uh, how good they understood, how well they understood creation from the Bible. And so we had this little quiz and we had, I think we set up a game with two teams and there were prizes and things. And, and all of the trivia questions that we did were from Genesis. You know what they all figured out as six and seven year olds? They figured out That when God says day, he means 24 hours? And say, how do we know that he means day? And little kid would raise his hand because he said evening and morning and that means a day. And they came to all the right conclusions simply by reading the text as a six-year-old. And so what does it take to mess up Genesis 1 and 2? A couple of PhDs in evolutionary science or whatever. But God made it um, understandable because... If you mess with Genesis 1 and 2, you know what you're saying about God? You're saying that he was incapable of communicating the beginning of all things in a way that we could grasp. If he meant millions of years, he would have said myriads upon myriads. That's how it would have been said in the Bible. And so we hold to a 24-hour day creation. And that is, um, that's important because that gives us now a basis for truth to understand Mankind as being created in the image of God. If I can, let's see. Maybe that's not going to go. There we go. Let me give you some implications of the fact that we're made in the image of God. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't give an exact definition of what it means to be made in the image of God. We're sort of left to figure it out. But there's, a, there's so many implications that I think, it's, um, I think it would be similar to the book of Proverbs. If you've ever read through the book of Proverbs in one sitting or maybe in just a few readings... You, you, you would give it an A for content and an F for organization. Because you would say, how come these 15 Proverbs that are all on the same subject aren't together? They're spread out all over the place. And how come, uh, for example, uh, one Proverb says, do not answer according to a man's folly. And the next one says, answer a man according to his folly. Well, which one is it? It's both. The nature of the book of Proverbs is it's built for you to chew on it it's built for you to think about it and to pray about it and to look through it and to have your pages dog-eared as you go back and forth the image of god issue is the same that we're meant to think on it and 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 chew on it and contemplate it so we don't get just a uh verse chapter and verse that says here's exactly what image of god means let me give you some general implications first, and I'll give you three views on the nature of the image of God. There's implications for behavior and for our view of others. James 3, 8, 9 says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Why is it that you are not allowed to hate unbelievers? Because they're made in the image of God. And what God does with them is God's business, not yours. You should, you should be praying for them and loving them there and, and asking God to do great things. But never do we say, well, I love Christians, but I hate non-Christians. That's not a biblical worldview. There's implications for justice. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Can I say this? Any nation or any government that refuses to exercise the death penalty is denigrating mankind as made in the image of God. If you rob somebody, theoretically, you can pay them back. If you take somebody's life, you cannot pay that back. Therefore, blood is required. Creation in the image of God is affirmed for all persons. I think one of the many, many sad things about Islam is that women are considered inferior to men. They're a lower order of person. This isn't allowed by the biblical doctrine of the image of God. Male and female, he created them. It's also the basis for human uniqueness and dignity. This is a great way to start uh, an evangelistic conversation. You You can get this about two or three questions in. Question one, do you ever think about religious things? Well, yeah, sometimes. Do you ever think about God? Yeah, sometimes. Do you know? that the Bible says that you're made just like God, you, that'll get somebody's attention. Really? I didn't know that. And that starts a conversation. The image of God is, in mankind is severely impaired because of the fall of man, but it's not lost completely. It's been defiled. It's been, uh, it's been stained and tainted because of sin. But the image of God remains intact. Genesis 9 and James 3 tell us this. You are still made in the image of God. That you're not lesser in the image of God. You're just not showing the image of God like you should. What did Paul say? He said that we are being, uh, we are being transformed from glory to glory. Meaning that the shine is coming back through sanctification. That we might fully reflect God. More implications. It implies ownership by God and accountability to God. If you're made in the image of God, it means to God. Mankind is accountable to God as his image bearers. Uh, I like to talk about this sometimes when somebody has a baby. What did, what did uh, Jesus say when somebody said, are you going to pay your taxes? He said, he took a coin and said, whose image is on it? Caesar's. Well, then give it to him because his image is on it. When a baby is born... That is a baby in the image of God. That child belongs to God that it, because we're made in his image. And that has implications, of course, for abortion as well. They're made in the image of God. Another implication, Jesus Christ is the complete revelation of the image of God. If you ask, I wonder what an untainted human being would look like, Jesus is our answer. We don't have to derive theoretical ideas from this. We simply look to his life. And we look to who He is. And what's so encouraging about this is that Romans 8, 29 says, we're being conformed to His image. You want to know what you're going to be like? Read the Gospels, and you will be like that. You know what you ought to aim for. You know what you ought to be. And you know what you will be. And we we can't fathom that. I mean, we're, we're, we're dirty, filthy human beings, and we interfere with each other. I mean, it's hard enough not to... It's hard enough dealing with difficult unbelievers. We deal with difficult believers within the church. And sometimes you go, I don't see much of a difference. Because we're tainted by sin. But it's an amazing thought to think that there will be a day when never again will anybody offend you. And more importantly, never again will you offend anybody in ways that you don't even know. This is the starting point. It's the common ground that we have with non-believers. You can, in an evangelistic conversation, you can say, you know, it seems like we have absolutely nothing in common, but I'll tell you one thing we do have in common. God made us just like him. Would you be interested in hearing how you're like God? And you can tell him all the wonderful things that it means to be made in the image of God, that you have emotions and intellect, and that you are able to think, and you have a soul, and that that you never make mistakes And that person will say, well, hang on a minute here. I've made lots of mistakes. Well, yeah, I know. The Bible calls that sin, and therein lies the problem because we're not accurately reflecting the image of God. Would you like to know how you can? And there you go. So the image of God leads to great evangelistic conversations. So what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Let me give you kind of three major views, and then we'll try to uh, put them together. There's what's called the substantive view, that we possess the, the same uh, physical and psychological and spiritual qualities as God. Uh, the Mormon view of, is the substantive view, and they emphasize big time the physical aspect, because they say that God is just a man, but he's just a really, really, really evolved man uh, who uh, knows how to do things that we don't know how to do. So the goal for the Mormon is not to become like God, but to become God's. And so there's a big difference there. But there's, there's value to the substantive view that we possess these qualities that are the same as God. And when we say physical qualities, we do believe that God is, is an invisible God, but he describes himself in physical qualities. He describes himself as having hands, as having eyes, as having feet, because those things function in a certain way. But we would say that uh, I'm psychologically like God. I'm spiritually like God. The relational view says that we're made in the image of God and that we have the capacity to experience relationship with God and with other humans, that we have that capacity. Now, if you evaluate this, I think that's that's really more of a consequence of being made in the image of God. Um, It would also mean that those who are incapable of relationships or choose not to relate to others, that they're somehow lesser. The unborn child doesn't have a, a relationship. I know that all you mothers would say, well, wait a minute, we had a relationship, but you didn't talk and you didn't interact in a way that, was, that, that they were cognizant of. Um, what about the mentally handicapped? What about those that, that barely take any information in and certainly can't communicate that? The relational view would be a problem because that would say they're lesser than the image of God because they're incapable of relating on the human level. So we would have a problem with that. Uh, as As being the only view, then there's the functional view. The functional view is linked to our tasks to rule as God rules. It doesn't speak directly to the qualities of personhood but to the function of personhood. and if we had to choose one of the three, um, if you were forced to choose one of the three, the functional view, is the only one that really enjoys the most direct scriptural support. And the reason is, is because in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28, the image of God is directly related to our dominion over the earth, to our ruling over the earth, that we do what he does. Um, The very end of the Bible says that all those who are in Christ will reign with him. And so the functional view is linked to what we do. Now, does that mean we have to choose one of those? No, I want to remind us, These three views are human constructs. They're ways that we have come up with organizing. If I had to put this all together, I think a good option is a combination of the substantive and the functional view. Views one and three, because we are like God. We cry out to God in ways that that He created us to. We relate to God. We speak to God. He created language, and we speak to Him in that language. And so... We are like him substantively, and then functionally, of course, that one's the easiest one to prove. But is there a relational view in there as well? I think we have to include that, and I'll tell you why. We could never serve a God who says, I am love, or God is love, who was not also Trinity. Why is that? Because a God who has been alone cannot, by definition, be loving. Because there was no object of love, and you might say, "Well, but once he created mankind, then he started loving." I can't serve a God who had a beginning point to his love. I can't do that. What do we have in the Triune God? We have an example of relationship. We even name our family members after God. We have fathers and we have sons. And I preached a whole message a few mothers' days ago, that a few years ago that the role of mother is designed after the role of the Holy Spirit. And so I would put in that there is a relational component to this as well. You see how this makes you chew on it? And it makes you think about what it means to be made in the image of God. So I think a good option is a strong uh, view one and two combination with some uh, salt and pepper of view number two. Uh, One and three strong and view number two thrown in for good measure because of the Trinity. Well, I want to finish our time just um, doing a couple more things. I want to give you just a real fast list of implications for current issues. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Because once you understand a biblical view of the image of God, these issues begin to make sense. So you have, first of all, the issue of evolution. We've already talked about this. Uh, The differences between mankind and the animal world are way too profound to be explained by evolution. The animal rights movements that have gone on throughout history. We're to be good stewards of God's creation. The law of God in the Old Testament even prohibits cruelty to animals for no reason whatsoever. But animal rights activists generally operate from an assumption that animals are equal to humans in value and moral worth. And in fact, I would say that most liberal, radical animal rights activists operate from the assumption that animals are of more value than humanity. Why is this? Because they all also believe in human abortion. Oh, they'll save a baby seal any day of the week and spend tens of thousands of dollars to do that, but they won't lift a finger to save the millions of babies that are being slaughtered every year. How about the environmental movement? environmentalists boy this is big now you know it used to be that people made fun of global warming now it's expected that you believe in it right we're to be responsible We're to be respectful as stewards and rulers of the creation but we're to resist the idea that humans are just another part of creation we're the ruler of creation creation is here for us not the other way around we don't serve mother earth there is no mother earth there is a father who made the earth and it's for us And we've pointed this out before that we live on a disposable planet. I I like to uh, point out that environmentalists don't enjoy um, the fact that the earth from the Bible's viewpoint will be burned up. Like you can save all the trees you want. They're all going down eventually. How about capital punishment? The Bible gives governments the right to use capital punishment because of mankind being made in God's image. Abortion. All humans are created in the image of God. Psalm 139, that, that you were known from the moment you were in the womb. You were knit together in your mother's womb. How about racism, which in and of itself is a, is a misnomer because there's only one race, mankind. We just happen to come in different varieties. But there's only one race, the image of God universally applies to one race. This is why critical race theory is so uh, divisive because in, in its so-called attempt to bring people together, it's not doing that. It's doing the opposite. It is an attempt to divide people. So ironically, critical race theory is the most racist thing to have happened in, in 50 years. Feminism. Uh, the brand that tries to erase God-given differences in temperament and roles which are reflective of the triune nature of God. This is This is wrong. Man and woman are equal in essence, and the triune God, they are equal in essence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, equal in essence, but there's also functional subordination. God the Spirit submits to God the Son who submits to God the Father, yet they're equal in essence. Jesus said, I came to do my Father's will, and he obeyed him. So what about the male and female? Let's talk about that for just a moment. Both male and female are image bearers, according to Genesis 1, But there are physical, there are lots of differences. There are physical differences. I'm not going to talk about that. If you took ninth grade biology, you can figure that out. We still come in two varieties, despite what uh, uh, liberals are saying today, that we come in thousands of varieties or whatever. There's still two. There are only two boxes on your birth certificate, male or female. There's no, there's no other role now. There's no other uh, option. We also have differing roles. We're equal in essence, but males and females have different roles. The male is the leader in the family and in the church, while the woman was created primarily to be the helper of the man. And we've already talked about this, but just briefly, Adam was created first. Eve was created after that. It suggests a leadership role for Adam, and this is confirmed in 1 Timothy 2. Eve was made to be a helper fit for Adam, Genesis 2.18 1 Corinthians eleven nine, Paul affirms that the woman was created for the man, not man for the woman. And I've said this till I'm blue in the face. This is not denigrating to women. This is a glorious thing to find out. I know my place. I know where I belong. Same thing for men. You know, when I do uh, marriage counseling, I, I'm going to say eight times out of ten, one of the big problems in the marriage is that they flipped roles. And they just need to reverse them and much will be solved. Another difference, the aggressive versus the nurturing nature. And I know this is a broad generalization, but it's generally true. This is pretty self-explanatory. I find this ironic, though, that in our sin nature, both genders tend to put down and make fun of and denigrate the constitution of the other one. Women say, oh, well, you know how men are. And men say, well, you know how women are. No, it should be women saying, you know how God created men. And, and men saying you know how God created women, that there's a glory to that. They either denigrate the constitution of the other, or worse, they imitate it. You have girly men who just act like women, and they need to stop. Um, one of my professors in seminary, Dr. John Street, he wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation on how to how to help a Christian who is coming out of homosexuality. And it's, his solution is pretty radical. It is practice being manly or practice being womanly. And I've seen him tell men, don't walk like a girl and back him up and say, here, walk like a man. In other words, to be who you are as created by God. And then there is the idea of being goal-oriented versus person-oriented. Again, a broad generalization, but the two work together well. Generally speaking, men are more task-oriented and women are more relationship-oriented. And so those two work together. So why did God create male and female? Why not just one general gender that can take care of everything? Well, we have the propagation of the human race, obviously. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. This pushes us toward relationships. That even though Adam is created directly by God, he was still lonely, and so we're pushed toward a relationship. It also gives us mutual dependence on one another. 1 Corinthians eleven eleven. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So it pushes us toward relationships. And I've, as I've already said, male and female reflects the nature of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. And so, in a real sense, a man meaning male does reflect the image of God but not fully a woman reflects the image of God but not fully the most accurate reflection of the image of God is a man and a woman together that's the most accurate reflection believe it or not this gives implications for the importance of the marital physical relationship and I'll just talk about this for a second and we'll be done The physical illustration and the manifestation of this level of oneness and unity in the Trinity is is so important. This is why uh, the Apostle Paul commands that the physical part of marriage is is vital and it's mandatory. It symbolizes and strengthens the marital union. There is a a mystery to this union that, that can't be explained unless you're with that person. It's intended, this union is intended only for the marriage relationship. Extramarital sexual relations and homosexual relations of any kind, they're sinful because they go outside of God's intended purpose. The intended purpose is, is the one fleshness of marriage. It deepens the commitment and the intimacy of the marriage. I knew a young lady years ago and she married a man and uh, came back from her honeymoon, and I, I was friends with her dad. And uh, her dad came to me and said, Yeah, that, it was a disaster. And what was the disaster? She, they came back from their honeymoon, and five, six weeks later, the young lady goes to her dad, and she's in tears, and she said, He won't touch me. He won't touch me. He hasn't touched me yet it destroyed their marriage. And what it turned out to be is that he was a practicing homosexual who thought he could fix himself by, by talking her into marrying him. But he wasn't a believer and he didn't repent. I've seen, on the other hand, practicing homosexuals come to faith in Christ, get married, have children, and live a perfectly normal life because God's changed them. And so you have to have this. This is part of being made in the image of God It's in the context of marriage that children are to be raised. About 30 years ago, there was a big push to redefine the family. The push has been successful because now the traditional nuclear family is seen as passe. It's seen as old-fashioned, seen as old school. You can say, well, a family is whatever you define it to be. No, a family is a man and a woman who have children and have grandchildren, have great-grandchildren. And so this is important enough that God commanded this part of marriage. This is important enough that God devoted an entire book of the Bible to the unity, physical, spiritual, emotional, of a man and a woman in the marital relationship. That is Song of Solomon. And if anybody wants to explain that away as Christ in the church, it doesn't hold water. And I'll explain that to you this fall when I preach through Song of Solomon on Sunday nights. So this is huge. Your marriage is is a reflection of the image of God, is a reflection of the doctrine of anthropology. So that was a lot. You guys are, your troopers, you're getting through this and we'll finish anthropology. I believe we just have one more session. We'll do that in a couple of weeks um, and we'll finish up anthropology. Let me pray for us. We went a little bit long and I know that. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had together. Thank you for these attentive ears and minds and I pray Out of everything that we have talked about this morning, Lord, I guess my my top prayer is that we would strive to be accurate reflectors of your image, that we would be those that are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, that we would reflect who Christ is in our lives until that day that we are completed, that we are made just like him. Lord, we pray for our time in a few minutes of more formal worship of coming with fear and joy and trembling and happiness before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.